That's right, Doc. November 12th, 1955. Unbelievable that old Biff could have chosen that particular date. It could mean that that point in time inherently contains some sort of cosmic significance. Almost as if it were the temporal junction point for the entire space-time continuum. On the other hand, it could just be an amazing coincidence. <laughs> Welcome back to Ramblin' and Amblin' Podcast, the podcast where we load up our Mr. Fusion to travel through the timeline of Amblin Entertainment, all the while trying not to create any alternate timeline hellscapes along the way. I am one half of your intrepid time-travelling host, Andrew Godian. And I'm the other half, Joshua Glenn. And we're very happy to be back in the podcast game after taking a few weeks' pause, returning for our very first Amblin sequel, Back to the Future Part 2. Woo! And for for our very first sequel, we're also welcoming back our first returning guest. So a very warm welcome to our great friend and writer, Mr. Daniel Kelly. Hello! Welcome back, man. I came came in too early there, but it's great to be back. Great to be back. Eager, eager Dan, as always. Good to have you, man. Good to be here. Fans of the podcast will remember Dan from our Poltergeist episode way back in January now. (laughs) Whoa! That's a wild thought. Yeah. Uh, Way back in January uh, or 1982 for those wanting to stick to the timeline of (laughs) Amblin. Uh, And uh, since then, we have kind of changed the format around a little bit, Dan. So you you missed out on a couple of uh, guest questions that have now become the the commonplace here (laughs) at Ramblin. Uh, so, so we're gonna we'll throw the first one to you with them being chiefly. What does Amblin mean to you, Daniel Kelly? Um, what does Amblin mean to me? It's a good question. It's a great question, and it's a question a lot of more esteemed minds have answered on this podcast over the last number of months. Um, I guess the easiest thing to say is it's it's a purity of storytelling, really, isn't it? I think nostalgia is the easiest thing to lean back into for people of our generation. Um, but I think it's the purity of storytelling. It's the lack of cynicism that these films, I think, tend to bring to the table, especially in that sort of golden age that I feel that you guys are starting to float through now or possibly have begun floating. It's that, it's that, it's that style of storytelling and it's that, it's that ability to move you, I think. And again, nostalgia comes into it as well. But for me, there, that's what it means on an emotional level. And I think fundamentally, Amblin as a brand is an emotional brand. I think Spielberg is an emotional filmmaker and I think all of these films orbit that in some way. So... For me, that's probably it, man. Mm-hmm. What was the one for you as a kid? What was the what was the one Amblin film that, that sort of typifies it for you? Or were there, were there a few? Is there anything that sticks out to you? It's a funny one because Amblin as a brand is... The, the obvious answer is Jurassic Park is the film that like I fell in love with. It's the first film I remember falling in love with. Although as a film, and I guess Jurassic Park maybe isn't the most Amblin-centric film of the of the group in terms of like evoking that, that Amblin feel, which I feel is very 1980s, um, kind of where you guys are mired in now. I think Back to the Future is one. I think E.T. is one. And I don't know if that's like a 
you know, just because the, of the symbolism and the icon, you know, yeah. the, how, how that tethers back into Amblin as a brand itself. But I think they're, they to me speak, ET is basically the purest distillation of what I think an Amblin film is. Um, but again, that might be just because yeah. of the logo. But yeah, I think <laughs> that, that, they're, they're probably the ones to pull out. Yeah. I mean, you've perfectly teared up my follow-up question there, Dan. So I, I was, I was hoping that you were going to say that. Um, so, with ET, uh, is that a film that you cry at? Yeah, did I have I ever cried at ET? I don't know that yes I've, for a second. I don't know if I've ever cried at ET, man. But I, it's definitely a lump in the throat. It's a profoundly moving film. Just to be clear, I think ET is a profoundly moving film. I'm not some <laughs> dark-hearted monster who doesn't yeah. feel that ET moves me. I feel like all, right, all of us have made that caveat so <laughs> yeah, far. Where it's yeah. like, <laughs> I haven't cried, <laughs> but... <laughs> but I don't know if I've ever cried, man. But yes, it's profoundly moving. That's the answer. Maybe a little, maybe a lace of tear. Just around the golden the tear. free of the eye, maybe once or twice. <laughs> You're not one of those single tear kind of guys, are you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's cool. Well, we're not here to talk about E.T. today, much as I would like to. Well, actually, I'd rather talk about this film, to be honest with you. Andrew, what film are we talking about? It's been about? a long time coming. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what are we talking about? And what's it about for those that may not be initiated? Oh, Christ, this was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> Cackles gleefully. All right, get ready, boys. Uh, here's what Back to the Future Part Two is, is all about. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Getting back was only the beginning. We open in Hill Valley in 1985. Marty McFly, played once again by Michael J. Fox, has returned home after his grand adventure in the original Back to the Future and is taking a look at his brand new truck in his brand new life after seemingly replacing the existence of another Marty (laughs) without questioning the grand space-time morality of it all. (laughs) But never mind, why should he care? His parents are rich and happy. That truck looks sweet as, and he still has the same girlfriend, Jennifer. (laughs) Although this time (laughs) in the form of Elizabeth Shue replacing Claudia Wells. Everything's great. (laughs) That is until... (laughs) Dot Brown, played by Christopher Lloyd, careens round the corner returning from the future in his now fusion-powered DeLorean, with a warning for both Marty and Jennifer that something's just gotta be done about their kids! Whisking them off in the now gravity-defying DeLorean, which a middle-aged Biff, Tanner, played once again by Thomas F. Wilson, witnesses, the trio shoot off to the bright and colourful future of 2015! A world with self-leasing shoes, hoverboards, zero lawyers, and 19 Jaws films. After knocking out Jennifer and hiding her behind some bins... (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to that. (laughs) That'll be a tight (laughs) ten. Doc tells Marty that he has to prevent his own teenage son, Marty Jr., also played by Fox, from assisting the grandson of Biff, called Griff, also played by Wilson, in a robbery which is an event which creates a domino sequence that destroys Marty's entire family. Posing as his son, Marty manages to change the shape of the future for the better, albeit after being goaded into a chaotic hoverboard chase sequence after being called a chicken by Griff. Before rejoining Doc, Marty purchases an almanac containing the results of major sporting events from 1950 to 2000. Whilst Marty's keen to cash in a bit on the, uh, <laughs> on the benefits of this sporting almanac, 
Doc is quick to warn Marty about the dangers of profiteering from time travel. But before Doc can properly dispose of the almanac, he is interrupted by the police finding the incapacitated Jennifer, who take her to her 2015 home that she shares with Marty and their family. Doc and Marty pursue to get her back and return home to their 1985, but little do they know that the elderly Biff is hot on their tail, having overheard their conversation about the time machine, as well as getting his hands on the discarded almanac. While Doc and Marty work to get Jennifer back before she runs into her future self, Biff steals the unattended DeLorean and shoots off to give the almanac back to his younger self. After rescuing Jennifer, who has once again passed out after seeing her older self, <laughs> the trio leave to return to 1985, unbeknownst of Biff's actions. Upon returning, however, they soon realise that this is not the present that they left behind. Biff's actions have resulted in an alternative, alternative hellscape 1985, in which the corrupt Biff is now one of the wealthiest and most powerful figures in the world, after winning bet after bet across the sporting events in across history. What's worse, he's had Marty's father George killed, forced Marty's mother Lorraine to marry him, and has had Doc committed to a mental hospital. Having deduced that Biff must have used a time machine to give himself the almanac, Doc and Marty discover that they have to go back once again to November 12th, 1955, in order to retrieve the almanac and reset the timeline, all without running into their other selves, who are currently working to get Marty back to the future. That was well done. That is very well done. That is a tough, tough film to synopsize. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's a well. That's pretty appeal. much half the film, isn't yeah, it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ah, <laughs> uh, so this is our fir- third Zemeckis joint now. Mm. After, of course, the. First, Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, two like incredible back-to-back movies to then uh, go into like having to follow up one of the biggest block- blockbuster successes. So Zemeckis is like we've talked uh, a great deal about Zemeckis on this podcast already, but I would I am keen to get your thoughts, Dan, before we like go right into part two about what you think of Zemeckis as a filmmaker and particularly around this sort of time in his career as well. Uh, yeah, it's a good question. It's one that I thought a lot about before I came on to this podcast, because obviously he's kind of part of this class of Spielberg, right? Mm. This this generation of filmmakers that comes up during the seventies and eighties. Yeah, he's in that he's in that swathe of of of, of directors. And I kind of thought, first of all, the first thing I thought is you kind of have to take Back to the Future out of the equation in almost to analyze him. I felt because. Back to the Future is such a perfect film. Like you guys have already covered it and done your episode on it, and I think everyone here feels similarly. Like it's, it's not just a great film; it's a perfect film in which not only does it have to be brilliantly made, the the the, the level of coincidence and luck that comes into creating something that perfect, I think, is just it goes beyond a singular director or a singular writer. And so, in assessing him, I kind of like that's my favorite of his films, and I think that's probably most people's favorite yeah. Zemeckis film. Yeah. And so I kind of removed that from the conversation and thought, right, well, I'll, I'll leave Back to the Future off to the sides because, again, I think it, it almost adds nothing to the conversation about him. It's so good. Um, and I was looking at the rest of his movies, man, and there are some great films in there. I really like Forrest Gump. I think Forrest Gump is an underrated film. It takes a lot of flack. I have a soft spot for, like, stuff like Death Becomes Her. You know, mm, we framed Roger yes, Rabbit right. is a great film, and obviously that's kind of in this period between the Back to the Future movies. 
But I think the thing that really jumped out at me is a, it's a slightly uneven filmography. But as a director, what I think his great skill is, and it looks to be just just view, you know taking a look over um over that history is he's extremely adaptable, right? He's the level of 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 material that he's gone to and that he's worked with. You know, he's done science fiction, he's done comedy, he's done you know big 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 you know event movies like he did the witches last year he's still working at that 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 pace and that scale and i just thought for better or worse you're a phenomenally adaptable and malleable filmmaker and also not one who's particularly insistent stylistically you sort of um unlike maybe your spielbergs or your lucases or your scorseses you're kind of always in service of the story like i i would struggle to say that's a robert zemeckis trope or that's a robert zemeckis inflection or that's a robert zemeckis film as a holistic concept or construct i just think he's very good at servicing story and i think that comes back to his ability to to to, to adapt across material and obviously he's also very good with actors that's the other thing that's abundantly obvious from his filmography he gets great performances out of people you look at this movie you look at the original back to the future you look at forrest gump you look at castaway there are a slew of great performances across his work so i think he's a really 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 skilled filmmaker i think his filmography is interesting um, and uneven but he, he, there's a lot to discuss and unpack when you think about him absolutely uh and like have you seen like what about the kind of like uh i think we briefly talked about this when we were talking about this show the kind of emergence of zemeckis under kind of like spielberg's wing is that a part of his filmography you're that familiar with or is that a bit of a blind spot it would be i'd be more zemeckis would be post back to the future is really mm-hmm. what is where i would be most familiar with him and, and the work he's done i think obviously him and Bob Gale, right, are the two that yeah, to, yeah. the two Bobs come through and create that film and do do that amazing work. Um, listening back to your earlier episodes and hearing a little bit more about that from a historical standpoint and listening to where Zemeckis has come from, it's just not something I know that much about. He is very much a fully formed. He's making movies at a studio level. By the time I come to him, and by the time I sort mm-hmm. of, I think, become cognizant of him and all the work that I've just talked through, that's all big studio work. So. I think as an emerging director, that is he, he that is a bit of a blind spot. He is Mr. Back to the Future to me. Yeah. And yeah. the work that he generates generates post that is what I associate with him. Um so no. Um as an emerging director, it makes sense, I think. You can see the sort of material that Zemeckis gravitates towards, even later in his career being quite Spielbergian. You know, again, I keep throwing up Forrest Gump as an example, but in my mind that's the quintessential Zemeckis movie. Uh, and you could even, you know, there's just their Spielbergian touches and a Spielbergian sense of whimsy and that. So I totally get why their two styles would be copacetic. And essentially, they seem to be guys who want to make entertaining, moving motion pictures. That's their modus operandi. And so it makes sense to me mm-hmm. that they would have, um, they would have become bedfellows, or that Spielberg would have picked up on his talent. Mm-hmm. It's de- it definitely is worth going back to those pre Back to the Future films because you do see the sort of the the, the raw material that's at the heart of what Zemeckis later became and you do sort of see stripped away from the Spielbergian sheen there is a cynical I mean we spoke about this in Back to the Future and Roger of it in particular a cynical heart beneath it and and a, a, a slight horniness as well that Spielberg's not really <laughs> in possession of but it, it is that cynical edge I think Spielberg for mostly better but sometimes worse always is a very earnest filmmaker whereas Zemeckis uh, he it also it, it has that earnestness but it's wrapped up in, in this cynical kind of um, packaging, which I, I, I kind of echo slightly, a, a bit more trepidatious than you perhaps, but I do echo your slight defense of Forrest Gump because I think that's a more cynical film. It's doing something on a different level than it's normally perceived as. You know, it's not 
the mawkish um, sentimentality that is dismissed as uh, it kind of is there, but it's not all it's doing, right? I think there there is something yeah. else going on beneath that, and um, like tr- tracing that cynical line is is really interesting in Zemeckis's filmography and where it makes itself most apparent and where it vanishes, <laughs> where it leads him down the uncanny valley. In the see, I just don't see any of that in the stuff that I'm familiar with. Uh, so yeah. that, that is fascinating yeah. to hear. And I, maybe I will go back and maybe look at that stuff. Um, but yeah, it's definitely worth me, Spielberg's already had his way with him, clearly, then. <laughs> By the time I get to him, yeah. Um, <laughs> so you mentioned that Back to the Future was one of your quintessential Amblin films. What is your association with this with this sequel in particular Mm. this sequel so i actually came to back to the future pretty late in life um in terms of amblin and in terms of digesting these films and and, you know i think just having a relationship with you guys i know that it's a very important film to you as well but i actually got to i didn't have like a childhood experience with it i didn't see it till i was a teenager and so i would say maybe 15 i saw back to the future for the first time yes so 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 really really late on i think uh, and then this led me fairly directly to Back to the Future's part two and three, because obviously the first one is such a brilliant piece of escapism. And I think you're re- it's like anything that's delicious, you immediately want more of it. And so I yeah. think I went to, to try and grab a, another slice of that pie pretty quickly. So it would have been around 15, 16 that I saw parts two and three. Um, and I guess we'll get to what they what what we think of them and what those films, um, mm. well, how those films hold up critically and stuff. But when I was 15 or 16 and I first saw it, I, I I enjoyed it. I thought it was, you know, it's a bit like, I don't know, is this the right time to go into that? Or do we do we, do we pause on this one a little bit? Because I, f- I feel like my entire relationship with Back to the Future 2 is based on its relative quality rather than any great, like, emotional response to it. Yeah. Um, so maybe it's time. Maybe I pause on that and we wait. Well, well yeah. an, an interesting tease. I'm excited to, uh, to know. Because I genuinely, well, I mean, I, that's not true because I've, I've got you both on Letterboxd so I know exactly what the two of you think of this film. So <laughs> it'd be disingenuous to claim otherwise. <laughs> but the listeners don't. So yeah, can, uh... yeah I think it's, um, it's, it, it doesn't, I don't have a defining moment where, mm. I, I can remember when I first saw Back to the Future and how Back to the Future made me feel. Yeah. I remember seeing Back to the Future too. I don't know that I felt a tremendous amount in response yeah. to the picture, but uh, I guess we'll we'll get to that again. <laughs> what about you, Andy? Was <laughs> was there a, 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 a shining light moment for you with this film? Um, thinking about it, like, and it was only like kind of preparing for this that I kind of like fully acknowledged it for the first time. I remember watching the first Back to the Future for the first time when I must have been about eight on BBC One Christmas. And then I don't think I saw two and three until I was about 12. So there was quite like a big gap for me where I just kind of thought of Back to the Future as this quite like self-contained mm-hmm. one-off uh, adventure. And like you say that, Dan, as being this kind of like perfect blockbuster to just keep going back to. And it wasn't until a bit later down the line that I actually watched the sequels, which were on t- ITV for some reason, um, not BBC. Odd. Isn't everything on <laughs> <laughs> Um, so I remember a lot of it because it's a like again, we'll get into this, but the pacing of this film's so weird, mm. and it's even weirder when it's got uh commercial breaks <laughs> cutting <laughs> yeah. through it on the <laughs> recording yeah. that you have off the TV. Um, but I always remember, like, I, I think it's like I'll, I'll say this off the bat, it was probably my least favorite of the three. And I think that comes from a lot of the the way it's structured, and a lot of um, a lot will kind of get into. I think a lot of the feeling of where people's kind of uh, 
particularly Zemeckis's priorities lie yeah. really do kind of bear weight on on this. Yeah. Um. So it was always it's always one that I've kind of felt a little less uh, enamoured by when it comes to the trilogy as a package, but on its own, it's certainly certainly doing a lot of interesting things and particularly more on the side of the Zemeckis that I always think about rather than this kind of uh like kind of Amblin director more the kind of technical mm-hmm. yeah uh virtuoso guy that he is as a filmmaker and how he is very keen to get in on the the latest toys and gadgets and gizmos to yeah. construct his films and that that that's that's where this one particularly for me I think is more interesting than say one or three yeah yeah. Um, but yeah, so it, it, there was a fair gap between when I first saw the first one and when I eventually got round to the sequels. That is interesting. I kind of had the inverse experience uh, to you guys with these films. I remember, I think I saw the sequels first, because back, back in our oh, day, when we were kids, <laughs> it was much less... I remember, I don't think these were readily available on home video for a while, so certainly in my neck of the woods. So a lot of what I watched was at the mercy of whatever was on TV at a given time. And I think the first thing I ever saw of Back to the Future was the end of part three, the the chain chase onwards. And then I thought, okay, I like this thing that is Back to the Future. I want to see more of this. I didn't quite um, understand linear storytelling or even like the idea of a holistic whole or anything at that age. And I think I, I happened upon the second part on TV and, and recorded it off, off the telly and took the tab out of the VHS so it was permanently on that video. You love taking the tabs out of VHS. I like to, I like to sort of make definitive claims. Yeah, this is always going to be my Back to the Future 2 video. So I watched that over and over again. And um, so that, that I, I think because the second one is the most... The, it's, got, it's, the, it's the weirdest. I think it's got the... Yeah. Storytelling-wise, character-wise, sort of a lot of the grace notes are really weird. And I was in an age where I was really into weird stuff. Like, I used to love the Disney <laughs> Alice in Wonderland and that kind of thing. Um, so the second one I watched, I think the second one is the one that I've seen, or certainly was to a point, the one that I'd seen the most of the three. Um, and then it was it was weirdly quite a bit later on that I saw the first one. <laughs> so I was very, very familiar <laughs> with number two uh, and the, the end of number three. But um, number one was quite a novelty. And in a weird way, you would have been familiar with certain parts of Yeah, one, exactly. Because... Yeah. <laughs> but it is, it, I've, I've mentioned this before on the podcast to the point of, of, uh, of endless repetition, but I, I think when you watch a film as a kid, the, the way you watch it is so fascinatingly different in that you, you do seize upon details and textures as opposed to causality and that kind of narrative storytelling. So... Um, that I, it really sticks in my head is like needles trying to convince him to to do that scam whatever it is on the big TV yeah. or the pizza. Come on, <laughs> come on! Why? <laughs> what are you worried about? That that <laughs> is one of the weirdest. yeah. Changes in this film, which I guess we'll get to, but that yeah. whole new motif that seems to because I don't believe I haven't rewatched yeah, yeah, Back yeah, to the Future yeah. in a while. Like that is so it's, odd. It's, it's, it's so not in the yeah. we. I I think I have a potential reason for that from an interview with Gail, but we can we can yeah we can. I'm excited to delve into that. But yeah, long story short was that for a long time this movie was to me Back to the Future, and because I was a fickle kid, uh, it was probably my favorite film of all time for a. Uh, for 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 a I, I can I can understand that because like it's probably the most 
like particularly the 2015 sequence yes. is probably the most like kid friendly yeah 100% yeah because there's so much stuff and like so many cool little gadgets and yeah rehydrating pizzas and yeah. <laughs> and also as, as an aside one thing I, I noticed is that um, the first movie takes place over a week the third movie takes place over a best part of a week this movie takes place over a day Depends on what year. In, 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 like, <laughs> according to Martin McFly, time travel is all irrelevant. But according to Martin's body clock, it's it's around about the space of twenty four hours if this occurs in. It's absolutely crazy. By the time Christ. he goes back to fifty five at the end, he had been there earlier on that morning. As far a, yeah, as his body is aware, they don't have a sleep. Don't no, they? it's no insane. <laughs> so like, it, it's, it's such a yeah, it's a, a tightly wound. Um, anyway, anyway. We'll get to this. Uh, do, do, do you guys want to talk a bit of uh, development and production context? Yeah, because uh, I'm sure, like, because, like, I'm imagining the calls for a, a sequel came pretty quick after the first one. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> huge, huge success. Uh, making $388 million off of a $19 million budget. You're going you're gonna, to, I don't think this, the most surprising thing is that it took as long as it did for that to happen. Um, Zemeckis has often said that they didn't actually plan to make a sequel, despite the ending of the first one. It's like a cheeky little nod to the serials of the day and that kind of stuff. Um, but obviously, a success necessitates a sequel. Uh, and Zemeckis' condition was that he would only return to the film if Fox and Lloyd returned as well, which it's hard to imagine what the film would be were it not for those two. Oh, yeah, like, there's no film, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> so he and Bob Gale, the writing partner from the first film, and his writing partner for his first two movies as well, used cars and... I want to hold your hand. They got their heads together and started creating the story. Now, the one thing that always comes up throughout uh, interviews with them and in, in Back to the Future Part 2 lore, which is, I think, something we might want to just get out of the way or get stuck into now, is that they always regretted ending the first film with Jennifer in the car as it required them to fit her into the story rather than coming up with a whole new adventure. Now, th this is this, at least two things about that that I, I take issue with, but... What do you, I mean, this whole thing of, like, we're shoehorned by having the woman as essential to... It's always felt like a poor excuse to me, that it's just... I do it, not... And I, I, they always seem like lovely guys in interviews, yeah, I'm yeah, sure, but yeah. it, it does just seem like lazy writing. I don't understand <laughs> they, why... They don't even try. No, <laughs> they would de facto mean that they're backed into a corner. I, I, that, that's in no way... I mean, I guess their sort of, their status quo is Doc and Marty adventuring together. Um, but, you know... She is a character. You, you, you can they do make themselves quite rigid without needing yeah. to be from the off. <laughs> it's so odd. I do love Michael J. Fox's line reading there. Like, then what did you bring her <laughs> for? <laughs> and then it also plays into that thing later on where, because Doc used the knockout thingy on her, it wasn't powerful enough to keep um, Martin McFly Jr. knocked out. Oh, yeah. So that, so that whole harebrained scheme goes awry. Dan, what do you think about the whole Jennifer, uh, Jennifer Gate? <laughs> I, I hadn't actually thought of it from the perspective where you guys are like they're not stretching themselves enough. So I, I read this, I read some of their stuff when it was before we came on, uh, and, and the complaint around having brought her on to the um, or the mis 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 mismanaging and getting her into the story because um, of the ending of the first one. I, I picked up on that as well. My first reaction was to agree is that that she looks at the end of Back to the Future. She kind of has to be there because the gang all have to come together. Marty, there has yeah. to be that catharsis. Yeah. And there has to be that tease, and that makes sense. I and this is just me thinking practically. I don't know what that character in the in the arc of this particular story, because this story is so 
I mean, we'll get to, I mean, Andy already has get, get gotten to it. It's so entrenched in the biff of it all mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff. She has no tether to that world. And I do wonder thematically where she would come into that and how she would she would push that story on. Um, obviously, when you first get into the story and he knocks her out, which is a super weird beat, I think. They hide it behind Ben. Ben's, <laughs> that, that whole bit is super strange. But it's so weird. Yeah. I just also just think the way that that it, it takes the story off on what I think is a pretty uninteresting tangent for a bit, which is mm. getting getting finding Jennifer, which I don't know takes about I don't know probably twelve minutes of screen time. Obviously, it tees up something else to happen in the background. Mm-hmm. But I just that feels like it feels very forced to me that whole experience and it's not very joyful yeah. even being in the McFly home and all that stuff. So it to me it, it is a little distracting and she is feels like a little bit of an uh, an unfortunate presence. But I totally get what you guys are saying that but, uh, yeah. What were you saying though? I I I, I th- it, <coughs> that was weird. Um, it's <laughs> it's handled in a very it's handled I think candidly and uh um you know spoilers for our big conversation. To me, the first chunk of this movie is the weakest because they are... Oh, I find it very hard. Yeah, they're, they're demonstrably trying to write themselves out of a hole that they wrote themselves yeah. into. But th- what always gets my go is they're not bound to continue exactly where they left off. You could just start number two afresh, start a whole new adventure. Yeah. You can make reference to the 2015 of it all if you want to, but... If if you are going to do it like a like an old fashioned series or you know an old fashioned adventure sort of one off show, um, just just make make it a whole new adventure, make it a whole standalone different adventure with the same characters, the further adventures in in time of of Doc and Marty. It's just such a weird thing to act like oh well our hands were tied we we lit this we had no other options. You had many other options. Just 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 wipe the slate clean. Just do a whole new adventure. Make it Indiana Jones. You know just just a whole different self contained thing it's i don't know mm-hmm. it's weird that they they sort of go down this road i, I just always get angry when elizabeth shoes miss like underused <laughs> yeah, <as well>. yeah. <laughs> i get married in the chapel oh love <laughs> uh but anyway yeah that, that's so that um, we'll, we may end up circling back to this later on but that's um justice for the shoe <laughs> uh so gay gail ended up doing the first draft of the screenplay alone as zemeckis was uh, away working on roger rabbit so it, it's it's a pretty pretty like the late 80s for zemeckis were really Really, really bad. Um, originally, it was set to end up in 1967, but the the time paradox potential of going back to 55 was was far too tempting to avoid. So, I don't know why 67 specifically, but no. they... I think it's just because it's like like that peak of the summer. Oh of, yes, like, the summer of love. That, that and, literally um, was the summer of love, wasn't it? In 67. Yeah, and I I think I I think I heard like Bob Bob Gale. They they quickly shot that down because it just wouldn't line up mm. with Lorraine and Georgia actually being college age. Yeah. They'd already be. In their late twenties, because Martin McFly <laughs> is meant to be born. That's the year Martin McFly. That's the year yeah. Martin McFly is born, actually, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so yeah, that, I understand why that one went out the window. Yes, <laughs> yeah. Uh, obviously, twenty fifteen was always fixed, given the ending of the original. Um, so for for the twenty fifteen stuff, the production team had to start making the sets before there was actually a script in place, and production designer Rick Carter wanted um, a, a different tone, a more optimistic tone, should we say, than something mm. like Blade Runner. The more dystopian future sci-fis of the day. Um, so he spent months planning the Hill Valley transformation. 
and visual effects art director John Bell said they had no script to work with and they were only told that it would be 30 years in the future and would feature something called hoverboards. So that was baked into the cake from the very, very start. Uh, on the writing side, uh, regarding 2015, Zemeckis was concerned about making wildly inaccurate predictions. Uh, Gale wanted to make the future a nice place where, quote, what's wrong is due to who lives in the future as opposed to the technology. Uh, again, to contrast the dystopian future of the contemporary films, they did a lot of research into predictions of the day as to what might happen in 2015, but they, they didn't want to be beholden by too much, you know, seriousness. They wanted yeah. to have fun with it. Uh, Zemeckis said, for me, filming the future scenes of the movie were the least enjoyable part of making the whole trilogy. Yeah, no shit, that shows. Uh, because I don't really <laughs> like films that try and predict the future. The only ones I've actually enjoyed were the ones by Stanley Kubrick, and not even he predicted the PC when he made A Clockwork Orange. So rather than try to make a scientifically sound prediction uh, that we're probably going to get wrong anyway, we figured let's just make it funny. And then Gail added, we knew they weren't going to have flying cars by 2015, but God, we had to have those in the movie. They do make uh, a couple of accurate yeah. predictions, though. Yeah, like, they yeah. do. Yeah, they're quite good. There's some pretty prescient stuff there. Like, there were dr- yeah. drones are in there. Uh, yeah. Black yeah. screen TVs. <laughs> Oculus glasses or glasses where you're watching stuff yeah. through the screens, whatever they're called. Google a Zoom call. Yeah. Zoom call. <laughs> like, I think, like, the, the ADHD of Marty Jr.'s TV watching as well. It's not literally the same, yeah. but it's also pretty smart. Weather Channel, MTV. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, two years were spent, uh, all in all, building the sets and finishing the script. So once uh, once the script gets locked down, you move on to casting, and you think, pretty straightforward process casting this movie, right? You know, uh, not quite. Uh, obviously, we have Martin <laughs> McFly coming back, and you have Christopher Lloyd coming back. You have uh, Thomas F. Wilson coming back, and arguably uh, dominating the film, which well, I'm excited. Uh, to, I think he's, very yeah. excited to talk about that. Spoilers. Yeah, I, I, yeah he's fantastic. <laughs> uh, yeah, Thomason also comes back. Um, the the stumbling block in casting was Mr. Crispin Glover. That's a very storied tale, uh, the, the reasoning behind his lack of return in this film. Um, he was interested in returning during initial conversations, apparently, but they couldn't come to an agreement on his salary. Now, there's, there's, there's so many different... Um, interviews and contradictory sound bites out there but he did tell the Howard Stern show in 1992 that the producer's highest offer was $125,000 which is less than half of what the other returning cast members were offered. Gale insists that Glover's demands were too much for an actor of his stature certainly in comparison to his his co-stars. Glover later stated that the reason for not returning was not the money but in fact a philosophical disagreement on the first film's message i.e. that the reward for the characters is material gain as opposed to love, which he has this is he has sort of voiced those problems widely. Uh, whether or not that's the sole reason for his not coming back, you know, remains to be seen. Probably was some kind of combination of the two. So the the, the workaround uh, by the two Bobs was to kill him <laughs> off in the plot. <laughs> Uh, they also obs- but not before <laughs> but, but not before reusing footage from the first film portraying him in the future uh, upside down by the actor uh, Jeffrey Weissman in heavy makeup uh, with a mask or with prosthetics based on a cast taken of Crispin Glover's face from the first movie uh, and also obscuring the character when he's in the background uh, with, with various lookalikes yeah. and stuff upside down the yeah, whole time yeah. <laughs> I do love his Chris and Book Glover impression though right, right. well you're right <laughs> who's gonna eat who's gonna eat all this pizza oh I will <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, as a result of this, which it's pretty staggering to think that they that they were able to do that and, and get away with it. Well, they didn't get away with that, actually, because uh, Clover no. successfully sued Zemeckis and Gale on the grounds that they didn't own his likeness and didn't have permission to use it. Uh, the case was such a precedent setter that uh, the Screen Actors Guild agreements now include a clause saying producers and actors are not allowed to uh, use such methods to reproduce likeness of other actors. Uh, and this, obviously, one of the big things this film offered was um, advancements in digital compositing technology. Mm. I mean, the same person. It's quite interesting like, now, yeah. isn't it? Right. <laughs> so while this stuff was, was sort of in its infancy, um, the protections for the actors weren't really in place. So this was used kind of as a, a cornerstone moment in, in personality rights for actors. Um, so actors may have agreed to appear in one part of a production, but they couldn't have their likenesses used in other parts without their agreement. And that was, that was kind of the precedent set by this film and the Glover situation. Yeah. Uh, a bit less contentious was the, the changing of the Jennifer. Uh, Claudia Wells had planned to reprise her role, but she turned it down due to uh, taking time to care for her mother, who was diagnosed with cancer. So Elizabeth Shue, the lovely Elizabeth Shue, was brought in as a replacement, uh, meaning the producers had to reshoot the closing scenes of the first film, which makes for a very interesting, <laughs> slightly stilted opening. <laughs> <laughs> All the line readings are slightly different. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Weird little pauses. Want to become ans- assholes or something? Pause. <laughs> no! <laughs> but a nice little bit of, um, uh, I don't know, uh, closure, I suppose, is that Wells did reprise the yeah. role of Jennifer in 2011 for Back to the Future, the game, which is not mm-hmm. something I've ever played. I don't know about you guys. It's one of those, like, tell- telltale games, so it's kind of like button pushing oh, rather than, like, an actual... Um, like Sam and Max. It's alright. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I like that kind of comeback. Yeah. She's quite involved in a lot of, like, whenever they do big reunions and stuff, she's always quite involved. That's cool. Which is nice. That's nice. <laughs> She's, um, isn't she a realtor now or something like that? Yeah, I think so. She owns a, I saw this today, she owns a, a boutique for used clothes nice. in Los Angeles. Do not ask how I came across that information, but I believe that, that <laughs> as of 2015, I believe that is what she was doing. <laughs> oh, That's good for you, Corby Wells. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so on the production side then, once we, uh, the script and the cast were locked down, um, it's pretty widely known that this was... I don't know if it was the first it was certainly the first on this level film to have its to be produced simultaneously with its sequel so parts two and three were filmed mm. back to back to keep production the only other slow. thing only other ones I can think of are the the Musketeer films mm. with uh, Oliver Reed that Richard Lester did they were originally that was shot as one three Musketeers and four Musketeers was shot as one movie yeah and then they decided to cut it into two. Uh, and then also, kind of going off of Richard mm-hmm. Lester, Superman and Realized Superman that, 2 yeah. were shot back to back. Yeah, okay, so... So those are the only uh, those are the only other cases I can think of that predate. Yeah, yeah, predate this one. But it's still, um, it sort of set something of a precedent. Um, yeah. Well, that's, I guess it isn't too common a practice. Uh, to keep production costs low, and also take advantage of Fox's extended break from family ties. And... This is listed as having a forty million dollar budget. Do you? Do you t- I guess that means forty million for this and forty million for part three, not forty million overall. I'd, I'd, I'd have thought, thought so because they both look quite expensive, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> not, although they they do recycle the same set. <laughs> they set a lot again yeah. and again and again. That's true. That's probably quite cheap to do, right? <laughs> uh, filming began for this on the twentieth of February at nineteen eighty nine. 
Uh, the crew split for a three-week period near the end of production. Most went to go and start shooting part three. Some, including Gale, stayed on to finish part two. So Zemeckis, good god, this sounds exhausting, only slept a few hours a day as he supervised both films, flying between Burbank for post-production on part two and other Californian locations for part three, which, uh, again, we can, we can delve into the effect that might have had on this film in particular <laughs> later on. Um, beyond its production schedule, uh, I think the, the big thing this film kickstarted was um, digital compositing, or, or, or certainly enhanced was mm. digital compositing. Uh, it was a groundbreaking project for ILM. Now, it wasn't just that they composited uh, two different performances by the same actor into one shot, but it was the use of Vista Glide, which allowed motion-controlled camera movements. So they could shoot a complex sequence where Marty plays three separate characters interacting at a diner table with dynamic movement. And they could pass objects to each other and, um, uh, you know, it, it looks... You know, it doesn't, it doesn't have that stilted look that some of the earlier yeah, examples could have. Yeah, it's a similar evolution to what they kind of had started doing with Roger yes, Rabbit in terms yeah. of like getting the camera movement into there. Uh, and it's great. Like a lot of those scenes, I think, and particularly the way, like we, I'll talk in more detail about it later. But there's a, a good handful of scenes in this where you can really tell the compositing and the use of this camera is like impeccable. Yeah, think, yeah, right? it's very smooth. I think sometimes you do genuinely forget that you're watching the same person interacting yeah. with themselves. <laughs> um, <laughs> as well as this pretty seamless uh, uh, you know, CGI technology, th- th- there's some slightly more uh, noticeable effects, shall we say, particularly the shark, the holographic shark from Jaws 19 <laughs> that attacks Marty. Shark still looks fake. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, Ken Ralston of ILM uh, didn't alter this from their first CGI test because they liked the fact that the design was all messed up. <laughs> they liked them, yeah, the messy I like that. bloodiness of it all. <laughs> uh, Wes Takahashi returned from the first film, the animation supervisor, to work on the time travel sequences. Uh, and another little tidbit to add on is that there was enough footage of part three shot by the time part two near release that they decided to add a little teaser trailer of part three using the assembled footage uh, to the start of the credits right at the end of this one, um, which is a, a very peculiar relic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can't think of another film that, like, Matrix Reloaded never had no. a... Did, no, it had a... Did it have a post-credits trailer? Oh, maybe it had a post... For Revolutions? Yeah, post- <laughs> I, I guess, what was it? Thor had the trailer for the Avengers at the end of the credits as yeah. well. But certainly, this was very much baked into the cake. The trailer was very much yeah. to be continued. But don't worry, this will be continued. And what is wild... <laughs> we swear. Yeah, it shows, it's, it's so, um, there's, there's none of that spoiler aversity with this. Like It shows Martin McFly in Old West garb kissing Jennifer on her 1985 Yeah, that's the end. Which is one of the final things that happens. Yeah. <laughs> I'd completely forgotten that that did happen. In fact, that that was yeah. part of this at all. So it completely took me... So I watched it via the Sky Store. So it wasn't on some old disc or some old VHS uh, cassette or anything like that where I might have like overlooked it. But I was like, holy shit, this is actually baked into the uh, mm. the film itself. Which is, But it, it is interesting as well when you think about that. You mentioned um, Marvel there, Name Drop Thor or whatever. It acts very much as a precursor for what, yeah. what we see now with you know after the credits scenes or mid-credits stings or whatever, we, which are generally something I can't really abide. And to me... 
at least Back to the Future Part Two is doing it so brazenly, like it's essentially (laughs) (laughs) it's doing it without making any pretense or apologies. So I actually respected it a bit more. uh, Yeah, do a lot of other stuff, but I thought that was fascinating. Um, It confused audiences at the time in the test screenings, so the the test scores came back really low. Because it was, you know, you've only seen half a movie or you think you've only been sold half a movie here, which yeah. also makes sense as well. There is something wildly <laughs> cynical about it, but yeah. I, that, I thought I thought that was fascinating as well, especially in the 80s, just watching that, that you'd be like, what the fuck are you, <laughs> what is this? You <laughs> <laughs> have to wait six months. <laughs> Do you think if, um, if uh, Return of the Jedi was shot simultaneously with Empire Strikes Back, the Empire would finish with a trailer for Jedi? I do not. Can you imagine following that, that really bold bum note? With, you got Ewoks coming. <laughs> I love. I really love. And, and again, ahead of ourselves again. I love the note that this film ends on narratively, and it is. It, it's yeah. such a, a whiplash-inducing jerk into the sort of more carefree zaniness of part three to go from that weird like, uh, oh god, everything's gone to part to ah, it's all silly and daffy, and it's a Disneyland western. Yeah, I love. Uh, no, I'm with you. There. I love Chris Lloyd's um, performance. Uh, the, uh, you know, at the yeah. end where he comes, uh, yeah, it's just the sheer exhaustion that emanates from him. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> 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 Michael J. Fox comes careening right in the corner at him. Uh, no, I, I, I think I completely agree. I think there's a screwball <laughs> element to these movies that is very infectious and very yeah. fun. Yeah. Um. So once all that was done, it was released on 22nd of November 1989. It made 27.8 million on the opening weekend and 43 million over the five-day Thanksgiving holiday, which break which broke the previous record held by Andrew. Don't know what the previous record holder was. It for was your boy release. Rocky Four. Oh baby! <laughs> <laughs> it ended up taking in 336 million worldwide, just shy. Of what the first one, actually, uh, fair bit shy of what the first one took, actually. Um, and it was the third highest grossing film worldwide of 89, behind Last Crusade and Batman. Uh, it opened some mixed reviews at the time, uh, with Ebert giving it three out of four stars, saying it lacked the genuine power of the original, but he praised the slapstick humour and the hoverboard chase sequence in particular. Uh, one of the more interesting ones that I found was from the Chicago Reader, which criticised Zemeckis and Gale for turning the characters into strident geeks and for making the frantic action strictly formulaic. He, you made them uh, nerds! <laughs> he believed that it contained rampant misogyny because of the character of Jennifer Parker being knocked out early on so she wouldn't interfere with little boy games. Uh, he also cited Michael J. Fox in drag, but... Don't want to open that. Yeah, I think that's. I think that's reaching (laughs) as much as I think it's quite a lazy screenwriting move on their part. I don't think maybe it's an unconscious misogyny that it's born out of, but I don't think it's like aggressively misogynistic. I don't know. I mean, I think there's 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 some there's there are points there. I mean, it goes back to what you guys were saying earlier on the use of or the lack of use of Jennifer. Whether that be yeah. for practical reasons or whether that be for any other purpose, you could critically read into that. And it goes back to what you guys were saying. The film probably should do better and do more. I don't know if that means it, it is misogynistic. I did think the uh, 
the, the I mean, I don't know if we're going to talk about it, but the use of drag did strike me as something that was a, a complex choice for the film to yeah. <laughs> for the eighties. That felt like a complex choice to make. Um, so I don't know if it's, so, it's entirely unfair there either. Um, but I did, yeah. did read Ebert's review. I thought Ebert's review was really interesting and actually aligned really yeah. closely with my own sort of read on the film. Pretty close to the money. And, uh, yeah, I think this is one that has probably had the biggest change of reception over time, I dare say. Yeah, I would a say lot so. Of, uh, a lot of people will, you know, ride or die for this one. Um, I get the sense that of the three of us, I'm the closest to that yeah, opinion. It's, it's never something that I've ever quite... Mm. It's a very flawed... I appreciate a lot of what this film is doing, yeah. particularly on a technical level and particularly in the 55 stretch in the final act. Yeah. But otherwise, I, I particularly the first, I want to say like hour. <laughs> uh, okay. Pretty much all the 2015 stuff I find very difficult. Um, uh-huh. <laughs> well, I think... I, I appreciate yeah. joke, joke laden, but um, I, and I feel the future is a good point to kick off. The 2015 yeah. future is a good point to kick off the general discussion here <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah yeah it leads us quite nicely into what our what our overall thoughts were so I, we all seem pretty much in agreement that the opening stretch is is the toughest to get through. i think i would say yes. i would agree we i would agree wholeheartedly yeah hmm. yeah I, i've just spoken for a while so i'll, I'll pass the microphone to, to hmm. you mr kelly so what, what what's your sort of read on the opening stretches talk about the future mr kelly <laughs> the bright future of 2015 I, mean, the, the film itself, I didn't really comment on the film itself too much up front uh, i i maybe yeah, yeah, fa- yeah. falsely teased uh, that that something uh, insightful was going to come i think it's a good movie i like it I, I went back and watching it again it was really pleasurable to sit through i think there's a real art into how it stitched together um you know it, it runs a very complex timeline it runs a lot of complex assumptions some of it yeah. will maybe get to don't quite hold water um, but I would agree that looking at the film, if you split it into three traditional acts, and Andy's synopsis showed that the film actually, it's quite difficult to do that with this movie. Um, I do. The 2015 stuff is kind of exhausting. And I think that's because it is such, to me, the stakes are pretty low. I think we're not really, yeah. the clarity's not really there about why we need to do this, you know. And it actually transpires in the end that the only reason we're going to 2015 is to stop Marty Jr. going to jail. Marty Jr. looks like a bit of a goof. We're, you know, why do we care about this stuff? That All that kind of surfaced um, surfaced to me when I was watching it again and thinking about it. I was like, the stakes really aren't high enough. And then that, that aesthetic view of the future is quite, that 2015 view of the future is not a fun environment, I don't think, to be in. It's garish. It's it stinks of the eighties, and I've got to be honest, eighties aesthetics are not something I gravitate. It's, to. it's one of those nostalgia places, but not done very well. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, tough. it's tough to sit through, and then you have the whole stuff with Jennifer as well, which I think we all agree it doesn't really hold water and gets it. It does propel the story forward, and we eventually kick into a more interesting part of the narrative after that. But I completely agree. I just think that 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 opening stretch feels languid it feels low stakes it feels a little bit unclear why we're doing this exactly yeah the heart's not that the heart's not in it the heart no. doesn't come in it until we get back to 85 and shit starts yeah, getting weird that's yeah. the movie um, right that's the movie yeah. Is that? <laughs> yeah that's when you realize oh this is what the movie's doing yeah. okay buckle in because yeah. like like you say there, i'd like that quote from zemeckis saying he like didn't really want to bother doing future stuff and they end up just kind of their approaches just throw it throw detail and jokes into it 
and there yeah. are lots of like like I was saying before particularly when you're a kid there's a lot of stuff that is fun like self-lacing yeah. shoes a coat that dries itself the hoverboards are like that that is one of the most kind of like iconic pieces of uh tech mm-hmm. out, come out of this whole franchise out of the whole 80s i'm wearing hoverboard socks right now but <laughs> <laughs> and i do think it's got like interesting the way that the the future is kind of introduced to us because it is you start by being in this kind of Blade Runner aesthetic where we mm, come in on a yeah, stormy night with flying cars on a like yeah. a, you know, on a highway in the sky as it were and then we come down and the weather clears up and then you get into this kind of chaotic kind of condensed remake of the middle action sequence of the first film yeah. which cut in a way kind of acts as a kind of signpost for where we're going to kind of end up in the final act where we are directly interacting with the events of the first film but at this point it just it just kind of reeks of this kind of uh let's just do the best of bits but in a different glossy colorful setting um as fun as it is to kind of see these techs this like futuristic tech um concepts fought out and put on screen uh, and, and like one of my favorite bits of trivia is the fact that Zemeckis did a whole bit in the promotions and said that they were real yeah. and the government was letting them use them. For... <laughs> Do you guys think that um, this really interesting point you bring up there uh, around, I think, how, how joke-laden it is and how brazen and how bright and actually how materialistic that whole yeah. section of the movie is. Like it is that thing of, you know, print the sticker and slap it on a lunchbox. You can sell this stuff to kids. And obviously Zemeckis wasn't wildly enthused about it either, based on what um, certainly what you're recounting, the pair of you. Um, do we think, or is there any evidence to suggest that that opening section, that 2015 section, is a trade-off? Because obviously the middle section of this film is pretty dark, like it's pretty bleak yeah, and yeah, weird yeah. and wild. Well, I think this kind of tees up my hot take a little bit, so I might just um, I might just launch straight into that because it's kind of I I do I very much agree that the opening is, is tough and no amount of intellectualizing uh, it as an allegory uh, makes it any easier to swallow. I, the thing that kind of gets me is that Doc's plan is just so dumb. It doesn't make it any doesn't, sense. Yes, it doesn't make like, any what, sense. Why is this what, the event that they, he's now choosing yeah. to like correct oh, rather than anything if, else? Yeah. <laughs> if you want to change future history, just change something in the present. I mean, what the, the future history is not a thing. And also like, because it builds into this whole thing where it starts like uh, teeing up that something happened to Marty that kind of yeah. completely throws his uh, future left. off down at a kind of more kind of mundane and yeah uh, yeah uh, track. Um, why isn't that the moment he's yeah. choosing? Yeah, and then, exactly. And then Doc's also like talking like self like he's aggrandizing about these rules of time travel. Then and I'm like, but you're kind of you're not adhering to that by involving yourself in this uh moment anyway so it it, it yeah it's, this is leaky it's a leaky man i was just gonna say it's also fundamentally not very satisfying so you get that cliffhanger from the first film where it's like something's got to be done about your kids marty and it's very like you know it's it's a big moment and you blast off and it's just like oh right the kid the kid's gonna maybe go to jail for a bit he's gonna do do a stretch in jail or and you know the, the domino effect on the family i never quite buy that and i completely yeah. agree with andy Doc is a hypocrite. Like, no, he's extremely <laughs> rigid about some aspects, and he cares so much about what happens to the McFlies. Yeah. I don't, 
I don't yeah. care. Like, the whole thing, it, it doesn't work. But like, it, it doesn't make sense. It's, it's clumsy and it's a bit lazy. And the sort of the exposition, I mean, the first movie is front loaded with exposition, but it's done so well. It's baked into the, the mise en scène. And it's baked into character traits so well that you don't necessarily notice that you're being overloaded. Whereas in this one, it's so blatant and, and it's just, it's a barrage of information. Uh, and like you say, Dan, the stakes are not very clear. I mean, it's really hard to get a foothold and why you should care. Now, something that I kind of, an idea that I thought when watching this film is that it, we know that it kind of gets metatextual in that it goes back to the original and kind of fiddles with that. But on an even wider metatextual level, it's essentially a movie that's about how impossible it is to make a sequel and the various ways that you can try and struggle to make a sequel. Like, like you were just saying, Andy, um, they remake one of the original film's set pieces straight away uh, in, in a way that's bigger, brighter, more, more spectacular. Uh, so much so that Griff himself, sorry, Biff himself even comments there's something it's very, very familiar about this. <laughs> Uh, so it begins as something like regurgitating the same stuff, but in, in like, the sequel mandate, bigger and better. Uh, and then when the film kind of textually gets a bit cocky and acknowledges itself as a, a bulletproof financial prospect, so when Marty finds the almanac, that's when it dooms itself to kind of fuck everything up. And the almanac is kind of the MacGuffin that causes the rupture in the space-time continuum and that kind of essentially breaks the first movie so that they then have to go back in time and fix the first movie to preserve its integrity. So it has this really interesting thing where it kind of... It, it, it almost lampshades itself as a bad sequel in the first act and then it kind of shows how a bad sequel can, in its own way, tarnish the original. And then the sequel becomes about trying to repair the damage that itself has done to the original movie oh baby and so much going on in the third act in particular them trying to undo their mistakes in the wings of the first movie to ensure that the participants of the first movie are unaware that anything has gone wrong and you're you know, a beautiful that, that... man josh glenn i love that reading <laughs> so i don't think that makes the first part any better any more enjoyable to watch in the moment but i certainly i mean however subconscious it might have been, I do think it's quite an interesting commentary on the making of a sequel. That is a fascinating through line that none of that had dawned on me. I, I give that a round of applause. I think that is, yeah, that that is very good. next level film. I'll add a little sound effect, don't you worry. <laughs> very good. Um, the, there's only one thing that, like, Titley is the thought that kind of made me slightly irritated with, as much as I would like the kind of weird twist that the middle act takes. And showing this horrible dystopia that 85's become and then them having to go out and fix it is when the film becomes much more exciting. And I, I like your reading a lot. But the thing that really does it, that makes this whole film really for me just completely pale uh, comes back to the idea of stakes. And, it, and it's because what is at stake is an, a, re, a reality that shouldn't exist anyway or that these two characters shouldn't actually belong to as it stands. So the fact that you're having to then agree with the idea that like the only reason they're fixing this is because this messed up version isn't beneficial to them. Granted, it looks more painful for everyone else involved, but there is a massive contradiction at the heart of this film that stops me from like really fully embracing it. And that is because they themselves have already made an alternative reality and didn't bother to do anything about it because it was self-serving <laughs> and it 
and it really like grays the character like the the main reason i really kind of feel a slight push to this film is that the characters of doc and marty just don't feel very consistent with the kind of charming figures that they are in the first first one because and we talked about it in our episode with harley on the first one the note of the end the ending we kind of read as like being a kind of satirical comment on the wish fulfillment of reagan america and that's fun to read it that way but this this film completely destroys that reading because they are their their whole purpose is to preserve that um reagan perfect reagan image that they um stumbled into at the end of the first movie and that's why this film itself doesn't work for me that that well because what's at stake is something that they shouldn't technically belong to anyway <laughs> there is a there's a cynicism about it i i 100 agree and i think the reason that this one doesn't doesn't i mean obviously there's things that come together in the craft of it i don't think the screenwriting is anywhere near as strong on this yeah i don't i don't i think don't, i think the character designs and the way marty behaves in particular particularly can jar you out of the picture quite in quite a striking fashion but i think fundamentally you're talking about what this film is about and i sat and i, I mean josh you've come up with a phenomenal reading there um and i like <laughs> yours as well andy but I really struggle to play it. Like the first one is about making the best future you can. And it deals with really universal truths around, you know, meeting your, what your parents were like as teenagers, the teenage experience, that conflict that exists between an older and a younger generation. Those really rich like that. There's a really rich tapestry of like emotional and profoundly like quite, it's quite brilliantly articulated in that film. That stuff is so resonant in the, in the first back to the future. I really struggled. Now I enjoyed this film. I really struggled to work out what it was about and where the heart of this thing was. I think it's really interesting to tether back what Andy's talking about, them trying to preserve quite a cynical sort of, uh, you know, for quite cynical reasons, they're trying to preserve their own, their, their, their whatever timeline that is at the end of Back to the Future Part 1 where everything's rosy. And yeah. I kind of get what yeah. Christian Glover's saying. Everyone's enjoying a very materialistically bountiful life. But I really the heart of this film is slightly missing for me because I just mm. really can't work out. There's a cynicism to it and I can't really work out what this film is about on a thematic level. What, what do you guys think it's saying in terms of the first one being really being clearly like that's a film about the future is what you make it. What is this film actually, actually saying and doing? I really struggled other than as an aesthetic experience, like a blockbuster experience. I really struggled to unpack it and make it mean anything. And I, I'd say that. Yeah. I feel, I feel like kind of the thing that it's striving for is tied to the almanac, particularly Marty's relationship to that. Because it, it, straight away from the off, when they get to the future, he talks about, am I rich? Am I rich? I am rich, though, right? And that, that's not, that's immediately a change from who Marty was in the first yeah, one. Yeah, massive now change. Capitalistic little shit. And I, I, think, I, I don't know, I, I feel like the film wants to be about the perils of un, unfettered greed. So again... Your what you just said before, Andy, kind of makes this a bit of a contradictory idea. But it, I think the film wants to be a more direct rebuttal of Reaganist greed because it shows how destructive that can be. And and like we have the the orgy of of like indulgence that is the alternative nineteen eighty five. Trump's America. Which, I mean, Biff's which, yeah, America. exactly. <laughs> Biff plays Trump. And there's even um, 
the line, a bit of a tangent, but the line when uh, Biff goes, Kid, I own the police! That's weirdly uh, evocative of when Trump said he could walk down Fifth Avenue yeah. and shoot somebody. And that, yeah, it's a, it is weirdly, but you know, that's a Tom Wilson. Of all the future stuff, that's the most press. Yeah, <laughs> but I think the film wants to be about uh, the, the damage done by greed and uh, yeah. a, 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 a unchecked power and, and sort of people meddling with things that they don't yeah. they sort of fully understand. But that's a lot. I, don't I, think I would agree with roots. that. But like, I think the issue is that like you're expected to buy into the fact that they're trying to fix a mistake. That yeah, they have yeah. also made and didn't bother fixing. Yeah, that is yeah, my main yeah. Problem with the yeah. film. <laughs> yeah. I think another thing that this film suffers with is that it's it's so in terms of setup and payoff. The first one, the setups and payoffs were all contained, whereas in in this one, it's very much part one of two, and the setups in this yeah. don't get paid off. Particularly yeah. as regards Marty's character, the whole chicken thing. I, I hate the chicken thing. I know. <laughs> I read or heard somewhere that um, Bob Gale was talking about how in the first film. It's really about how everyone else changes. How how sort of uh, I joke that Marty is kind of a Paddington character in the first film, and that he changes the lives of everyone that he meets. And it's all about George McFly learning to sort of believe in himself, and Lorraine, uh, you know, finding a way to cling on to the purity and the hope, and not end up the sort of alcoholic husk she is in the eighties. And and Doc learning to believe in his own abilities. Uh, but Marty doesn't really have, according to Gale, Marty in part one doesn't really have an arc. He doesn't really he doesn't really change. There's no transformation for him as a character. And so the chicken thing was their way of trying to make parts two, and, or particularly part two, I think, about him and about his flaws and his foibles and what he's got to overcome. Yeah. Um, which yeah. I, it, 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 it's it just feels not baked so in sim- anything that you no. know about the character already. He's, like, he's a different <laughs> character straight away, isn't he? Like yeah. Straight away in part two, he's a different character. And, uh, and I, yeah. I, part of it, I think you can kind of read as it just being like a teenager, just kind of what a teen's idea of like being able to look into the future and what they hope them for themselves in the future to be. And then a teen mm. probably would be more down for the idea of prop, like trying to see how you can make taking a glimpse into the future work for themselves. But yeah. I th- what, one, I find it just harder to buy because uh, Michael J. Fox in the four years looks more like a man in his late twenties than he did <laughs> he in does. 1985. Yeah. Um <laughs> And yeah, I I also just like part three is a bit more back to Marty in his ways as, as he was in the first one, and, and and I think that's particularly because a lot of the dynamic between Doc and Marty feels a bit more focused in part three. Because yeah. despite the fact that like they talk to each other a lot in this, and there's walkie-talkie moments, and that this is weirdly quite like Doc and Marty like like as them mm. actually as a pair. And I, I do think, like, they kind of forget how, like you say, the Marty character is quite good at allowing other, like, other people to see the be- better versions of themselves through his, through his being part of their lives. And yeah. that, that, that gets clouded it, within this narrative that I, I, that I do agree is also kind of is trying to be a cautionary tale, but I know ties itself up uh, <laughs> in many many avenues <laughs> it just feels like more of a sensory experience than a thematic one this movie this mm. it's, it's almost got theme park ride energy right well it, yeah it just hurls doesn't it yeah this one feels the most like the back to the future ride in universal studios yeah it's not it's the most similar narratively <laughs> yeah 
to to kind of like started to shift it to stuff that I really do like about this movie rather than the stuff that I not so much like <laughs> shall we say um cuz this whole the whole like first hour or so does feel like a very long-winded convoluted way of Zemeckis in particular getting to like we say getting to the point where he actually is more invested in this idea of going back to the events of the first film and like you say fixing the damage done in the wings and that that whole stretch where it's back in 55 that's where everything feels so much more alive everything's so much more inventive everything's so and and the stakes are pretty clear as well because you've got this one one overlying detail that is thrown in straight at the straight at the start and this great tension that runs through the whole final act is like don't run into yourself yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like you, you know what's supposed to happen because you've seen the first film so any potential deviation to that you immediately know the significance of it because mm. you know you know how things should look and should play out which is a really really cool i, yeah. I, I it's so exciting like conceptually and in execution it's so exciting even yeah. watching it for the hundredth time because I think even like kind of going back to this, the the Vista Glide nature of it all mm. that was designed for this, there is that very good s- scene where it's used in 2015 around the dinner table. Again, it's a it's a scene that's very overloaded with future details <laughs> that gets a bit like, Whoa! but that's <laughs> but there's the what the scene that I think that where it works to uh, where it works the best is the scene between. Tom, Tom Wilson, Tom F. Wilson, and Tom F. Wilson having a conversation in the car about the almanac, and the, the way it, the way the camera just like one is holding in, in the two shot of the conversation, and the way it just slowly pulls in and then pulls out and then pulls back in again, and it's a, it's just so effortless, and I, it's also a testament to Wilson's performance of those two versions of character and like yeah. even like the kind of big like big broader <laughs> villain version in the ultimate 85 yeah. he's fantastic <laughs> i think uh, but like even in this this moment in particular where you, it, it's kind of baking in the yeah. um the origin for ultimate 85 biff i i, lo- I love that scene one for yeah. how technically strong it is but also just for how well Wilson's performance works off his own performance. I think yeah. it's, it's a yeah. really it encapsulate a lot of what works about this film. Get the hell out of my car, old man! <laughs> I, th- I think he's movie. the MVP of the entire. I mean, the the work that Dean Cundey does in that scene is remarkable, and yeah. the, yeah. the Vista Glide stuff you're talking about is is a remarkable technology throughout the course of the film. But I just, I mean, I'm, maybe I'm skipping a beat here again. I think the MVP of this film, the energy and the reason that it works mm-hmm. in across its second and third act is Tom Wilson. I think he yeah, is extraordinarily absolutely. good. I know he's great in the first film and he's a very funny guy and I've always been impressed when I've seen him in, seen him in other bits and pieces, whether that be in sort of the, the realm of stand-up or the realm of other, other, other features, but Freaks and geeks. man, his performance here is just, it's a part across, like Andy's just said, he sensibly plays three versions of himself and he pitches every single one out of the park. Like it's, yeah. it's a remarkable bit of comic work. And actually, I think there's a little bit more soul to Biff this time than Definitely. there there was yeah. in the previous one. And I think that's just credit to Gale as well because that can't be can't be purely Wilson. But he just he brings this monster to life so vividly in three different ways. And I think that's uh, the, even the scene where um, 
I mean, which is which is a plot hole in itself is exactly how how Beth knows how to operate the DeLorean. I feel like that that's, yeah, a, that's yeah. a question. But yeah. anyway, the scene where he gets back and he's sort of dying, and I assume that's because he's erased himself from history. Yeah, so he's there kind is a deleted of, scene that fills that in a bit. But more. it still yeah. doesn't quite make sense, though, in, in, in the logic of the film itself. Like, if Marty and if yeah. Marty hasn't, ere- oh, well, why is he returned? Yes, here? Sorry. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> But the sympathy you feel for the devil in that moment, like, is yeah. profound, and it's just the physical performance yeah. and the pain and the agony, um, yeah. and the heartache that must a person to erase themselves in order to basically spite someone else or or, <laughs> or, or pursue material gain later yeah. in life. The, the the heartbreak and the the emptiness that person must endure. I just think his performance brings all that to the fore, and it does it in this mm-hmm. really big brash comic style. Um, yeah, 100% my favourite thing about this film is him I think without yeah. a shadow of a doubt I fully yeah. agreed there's some I, I love my sister and I have watched this together so many times and there's so many of his line deliveries because he even plays Griff I mean there's four yeah he yeah. does there's four yeah. <laughs> wait did you become the physical type? that's exactly <laughs> He has such good line readings, and he's got litany of facial. In in the final set piece, when Marty's trying to get the almanac from the back of his car while they're driving, the the litany of faces that he pulls is remarkable. It's he's such a, a physically gifted guy, and there's even little bits like when we first see him in 55 again in this movie when he's walking down the street and he catches these kids basketball and says you want to do you yeah. <laughs> and throws it into someone's balcony <laughs> but yeah then he has that, that sort of comic book uh, villain laugh <laughs> he's having so much fun and um so he nails the physical goofiness and he nails those um sort of broad sitcomy kind of acting choices but I think the eight, the alternate eighty five Biff is also genuinely quite menacing. That yeah. whole scene when he's chasing Mo, uh, when he when Marty confronts him and when he's chasing him, uh, you, you get a real sense of menace, which I don't think is certainly not present in in the first stretch of this film. You really get a sense of heft, and you get a sense of the dirty things this man has done yeah. to be where he is, and to just sort of to yeah. Treatment of the of, of Marty's mum of Leah Thompson, mm, like yeah. it's genuinely threatening. Like I feel yeah. her fear; it's palpable. Um, which I, yeah, again, extraordinary because of how goofy and screwball Biff is across the entire yeah. course of this film. Even yeah. in that, it, it, even in that, um, sort of that Trump version of him, that uh, Trumpian, uh, the 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 dominates the middle act. Like there is the palpable the fear that she has, it just it radiates through the screen, and it's all coming. It's it's yeah. that energy of him ricocheting off her. Mm-hmm. And I thought yeah. that was so. She's also great in this great. again. She's yeah, also she's great. great. <laughs> she's, she's, yeah, yeah, she really is. Not quite as. I, I, does she have more to do in part three? I don't think she does. Does she really? No, she's got like two scenes in part three. Yeah. <laughs> I suppose the first movie is really hers. This yeah. one is is Biff's. Um, Third one's Doc's. Yeah, th- pretty, pretty safely, Docs. Yeah, I also love um, how Biff always, no matter which version of Biff it is, without fail, he always falls for. Look behind you! Yeah, <laughs> and every his, single time. His little uh, his little mixed metaphors are amazing as well. Like I can't even I can't even quote them, but there's the there's the make like a tree and leaf, and then there's something about a a, a submarine or or a battleship and a submarine. As I, well. like, I can't remember um, what the lines are, but they're oh, so good. Like a, yeah. Like a periscope on a something or other. On a battleship or something like that. Yeah. Periscope on a dork. Yeah. Like those little inflections are really, really amazing. Um, and it feels like Gale and Zemeckis are having great fun writing that character in a way that yeah. 
you can tell we've already talked about in that 2015. They're not having fun writing 2015 or staging 2015. No, yeah. no, not it feels very forced. It feels very uh, McDonald's Happy Meal sort of stuff. But with Biff, you can yeah. really feel that they are having a great time playing with that character, playing with expectations, having him ricochet off other characters, and generally just putting him front and center in the narrative. I just even think he brings the best out of um, the best out of uh, Michael J. Fox as well. Mm. He elevates Michael J. Fox in several scenes. You talk about that scene yeah. where Michael J. Fox tries to doesn't really shake him down, but confronts him about yeah. the almanac. And that's 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 really, really well done. And Fox is actually really, really strong Fox in that sequence. That. Yeah. yeah. And uh, I just think, again, it's just it's interesting when Tom Wilson comes into the picture, everyone's game just seems to step up. And I think that's the mark of a generous actor, but also just mm. a powerhouse. And it's amazing. I just hadn't remembered him being this good. But th- that was the thing I was most excited to talk with you guys about today was him. I just thought yeah. it was strikingly good in this picture. And it feels like you should be a, st- a comic star after that. It feels like you should be... You talk about the facial expressions... Jim Carrey, as much as we all love him, ostensibly his entire empire is predicated on his ability to do the same thing. And it obviously didn't happen quite like that for Tom Wilson, though he is in one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, so probably no need to shed tears. But I just think it's an an absolutely grandstanding performance. Um, If there's a world where he could be a Sandler or a Carrey or someone like that and have have that level of clout. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You do get a sense with with Tom F. Wilson that he just didn't really want that. I I I feel like he quite enjoys a relatively easier life. The, yeah, yeah, maybe. Yeah, don't appear to him. We'll um in the description we'll link to his um questions song that he sings. So <laughs> oh nice. yeah, yeah. Michael J. Fox, like he's nice. <laughs> What's Chris from Gover like? Weird. <laughs> yeah, he's a cool guy. Uh, whilst we're on the topic of performances, um, a performance I like in this, despite the fact that I don't think the script serves him very well, is Chris Lloyd as Dot Brown. Mm. Because a lot of his function in this is just pretty much just ferry people to different time periods. <laughs> <laughs> he is a conduit in this, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah there's, there's less to play with. There's so many great lines that he has that he like really milks for like the absolute... like all there were one of my favorite is when they find out they have to go back to uh yeah. november 12 1955 is like unbelievable that biff has chosen that date it could <laughs> mean that the, it could mean this date might hold some special significance being the temporal junction point for the entire space-time continuum other than that it could just be an amazing coincidence <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's great. that that's the, the, the fist pumping moment for me i'm like fuck yeah this movie knows what it's doing and i'm really <laughs> for it. it's great fun <laughs> yeah i similar to that i um i i really i, I know it kind of gets mocked a lot but I, I actually love the blackboard scene i think that's a really it's it's probably the, the least it distills way. it nicely yeah <laughs> I, I just think it it, it 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 takes it's such a, a weirdly convoluted difficult to explain conceptually idea but i think it distills it really nicely and it, it makes it intriguing and it makes it exciting and his performance yeah. really it's very portentous you know you really feel the weight of <laughs> what they've done, how much they've messed it all up. That that scene yeah. does presume that the, this reality, like I do, like the way that Doc Brown has decided in all his like, in all his like sort of cosmic glory that this is the right timeline. Like he just assumed we're what? just told that this yeah. is the right exactly. timeline. That, that's, it, it, why it, I, that's why I. That's my biggest point, point I mean, of issue with this be, whole setup. <laughs> to be fair to Doc, though, this is the one in which he hasn't been killed, so I can kind of understand why he might <laughs> yeah. want to maintain that one as the status quo. 
Yeah, that's ultimately fair. But yeah, no, he, he's great value. He's great value in the part. Did you guys see that there was something in 20... I couldn't find a copy of it, but in 2015, yeah. there was like a spin-off, like not like a spin-off, but like a short film spin-off, like the continuing adventures of Doc Brown or something. Did we, you guys able to track down a copy of that? I wasn't. I also tried to find it. It wasn't it a Jimmy Kimmel YouTube. thing, was it? Was it a Jimmy Kimmel thing? Because he did a few things for Jimmy it's, Kimmel around the time. I, fi- I think it's on one of the Blu-rays. I don't know what issue of the Blu-ray. I don't think it's on the one I have, but no. it's like Dot Brown Saves a World, and it's basically a complete, like, I, I'm, I'm going to assume it's canon, but a way that they try to contextualize why 2015 yeah. in the film doesn't look like 2015 that we right. experienced. I, and it sounds really quite dark to me. <laughs> it's about like, like Dot tapes a video message explaining that he traveled to 2040 in a rebuilt DeLorean discovered that inventions such as the hoverboard and hydrated food have caused people to become massively overweight. And even worse, a simultaneous glitch in every nuclear missile fusion device on the planet has caused a nuclear holocaust that has decimated the world's population. So it's about him traveling back to uh, make sure that these inventions never happen. And that is why the 2015 we saw does not look like the 2015 back to jesus <laughs> i'd be particularly interested that's what attracted me to it, to try and find it was it's the 2015 question to address that i thought that might be interesting in the spirit of our conversation today to see mm. the official back to the future canon response to why 2015 the 2015s mm. we, we experienced or i mean because 2015 like is that was a long time ago now right that was that was nearly seven years ago <laughs> <laughs> It was yeah. a long time ago, so it, I would have been fascinated to see that, but man, I couldn't track down a copy of it. And also, just be great to see Christopher Lloyd. I, I, the trailers are on YouTube, and it just looked like he was having a blast. They're about yeah. 50 seconds long. You, you could spend a lot of time in the company of that man and that character. We're almost recording on the day as well. I was, <laughs> I was say, yeah. what, what, what is the actual day? Is it 22nd? 21st. 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 Yeah. Yeah. God, I remember, I remember October, that. October 2015. Yeah, remember that day? Uh, all I did was watch the sequel. I, I didn't I was do anything say, more. Like, that was a, that. Qu- a question that uh, Emily, my my girlfriend and a rambling artist, <laughs> art, p- provider of our artwork, she, that was one of the questions she wanted me to ask, whether you actually did anything for Back yeah. to the Future Day. Well, I was actually with her. Because I think you were away, Andy. <laughs> I was you at were, work. I remember you, you I were had working. to work at... Yeah when I was at Selfridges and had to it do was, a night shift. Yeah. <laughs> my, my girlfriend hadn't seen the films before going out with me, so we watched the first one and we watched part two on October 22nd, 2015 with Emily as well. Is that Back to the Future Day? Yeah. yeah. Why, is November, why is November 12th not Back to the Future Day? Well, I think just because they treated that one in 2015 as Back to the Future Day because that That's was the, the day, day that they yeah. traveled Shameful. to. I'm born on November 12th. November 12th is the birthday, hey. so that should be Back to the Future Day. I feel day, like though. that should that, that should be back to the Remember the 12th, that, that, that is like the, the center of the space-time continuum, isn't exactly, it? Exactly. Like, how is that not back to the future? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> One more dissatisfied customer. <laughs> and it's Dan's Kelly's, but your, your birthday is the most significant day in the space-time continuum. It makes sense. It tracks. If you, know, if you knew me, this would track like. Yeah. <laughs> but similar to how important that date is in the world of the film, I really enjoy how... Um, in terms of these as films, the finale of point one is the central pivot point for all three films. All, all, all three of the films do rely on that set piece to some varying degree. Like, uh, you know, in the first one, it's the legitimate climax. In this one, it's kind of the coda. In the first, in the third part, it's the 
sort of prologue to the action. I quite enjoy how they all pivot around that one set piece. No, I mean, there's a tremendous amount of thought goes into the craft. Of the, the the writing is remarkable in parts, and how this all it threads together at least superficially really well. Um, and I think especially when you can say one of the things we did, did we talk about in development about how were these written in? Can were they written? Was were the scripts locked before they went into principal photography? For two and three, that's a good yeah, question. Two and three. I'm not 100 percent sure on that. You know, they certainly weren't for pre-production. No, because they, they, they you said they didn't. They yeah. had very little to go on. But I, I'm assuming they would have been locked if they were shooting them both at the same time. Yeah, because I mean, obviously, with the, the films that I remember, the big films that I remember from our sort of heyday that were shot back to back were those uh, principal parts of the Caribbean sequels. Yeah, um, and uh, there were aspects of that film that reminded me of them as well. In that, there's this attempt to replicate what made the original. So, so you mean it's that it's that genie in a bottle stuff? You're not going to be able to get it again. Um, but there's these attempts to replicate it, set around, I mean, some really legitimately impressive big set pieces, but the narrative's quite convoluted in this really yeah, repetitious way to try and get back to what made the first one so great. And I was watching the, this film and I was thinking it reminded me a tremendous amount of those parts of the Caribbean sequels, which I quite like. I think they have yeah, their merits. I, quite like I, them I, I don't well. think they're bad at all. They are ridiculously I like the second one. over. I don't like the third one much. But <laughs> And I thought, wondered if the scripts here were locked prior to them shooting, because obviously the Pirates of the Caribbean ones famously weren't. Um, yeah. And there was just there were just shadows of that. Uh, when I was watching part two, it was like, I, you could see and you could feel how things might have been improvised on the set. Though yeah. It all comes together really seamlessly, and there's a tremendous amount of craft, and you would have to respect that about the films. They very much... They, they, they honour, I think, that first film a lot in how they, again, you go back to it, Josh, it, it is a pivot point. They treat it like almost a sacred mm. text. And I think yeah. that is kind of cool, yeah, for sure. I think that, that that's kind of I, as, as critical as I can be about this film and what doesn't work in it. I think I, I do, I will I will always love all three of these movies. Um, this one, I think I agree that I, I like it the least out of all three uh, because it is the most flawed. But one thing that kind of carries me through every time is the sheer ambition of it. it, it yeah, it's, I think it's, it's probably the most ambitious. It's got and... such lofty ideas, yeah. That, that's why I put it above three. So I don't think we ever got to like an official... Oh! Okay, I you would, like it more than three. I would That's put right. it more. I think they tear down. So my favorite is obviously number one by yeah. an Olympic level margin. But mm-hmm. um, yeah. I think I prefer this because of the ambition. I think three is a more consistent film. I think in terms mm. of you know, in terms of it's got a very defined structure. It doesn't rock the boat as much, and it yeah, plays no, itself. Really. It plays it plays it much straighter, and obviously has period to play with as well. So in terms of the costuming and the yeah. production design, there's a there's a sense of uh, of novelty and thrill there. I think the fact that this film and the word you used at the top of this podcast, Josh, was weird. This is a weird <laughs> movie. And I respect how weird it is in parts and how dark it is in parts, yeah. and I respect how ambitious it is to the point where I would probably place it above the third or the third film in my own uh, personal ranking. I just think mm. there's a it's scatterbrained and it's a bit all over the place, but there is a real defined sense of uh, of a of a unique artifact. With Back to the Future yeah. Part Two, which I just think the third doesn't quite have. If it, it feels like the sequel, I would have expected to see in um, a couple of years after seeing uh, the after the um, yeah. after the original. This one feels more like the weird evil twin that lives in the attic. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It is. It's mad conceptual, and one of my flaws, as uh, I guess flaws, one of my perceived flaws as a film fan is that I will forgive so much if there is that conceptual ambition there. It's one of the reasons yeah. that I love the Matrix sequels so much. 
is that they I, I, I'm so on board with what they're going for I love um, a big swing yeah, exactly love a big swing. this movie swings and I, I, yeah, I'm yeah. completely the same way I have mad respect for anyone even if they fail if you make if you try and you really try to do something that is that is loopy and weird and all the sort of the timelines that they're having to run together in this film, you just have to admire the craft and the ambition yeah, of it. Yeah, you really do. And the yeah. exact same way, man. It just it, that's what elevates it slightly above the third for me. Is just who the fuck thought this would work? They, they, <laughs> they, but they still tried it. Like <laughs> they still tried it. And you know what? They came up with a pretty good movie. Uh, again, I feel like we've yeah. been very. Uh, I feel like actually just playing, replaying the conversation, replaying my own input. It feels like I've been a little bit harsh. Like I should underpin. I think this is a really well overall well-made piece of entertainment and that's what it is to me so again it goes back to my qualm earlier on where i was a bit kind of like i'm not really sure what this film is about i'm not really sure what this film is trying to say and josh and andy you both posited interesting like uh, sort of answers to that question but i do think as a piece of entertainment it honks in all the right places it's sort of it glides by once you get out of that 2015 part yeah yeah absolutely the pace is well mounted the stakes are there I, I do think that that's probably worth underpinning is I, I think this is a pretty good film yeah, um, yeah. And I feel like I was being maybe overly critical earlier on to go back to the kind of like I the only reason I think like part three edges it for me over this one is because I like as you were saying earlier the heart feels like it's slightly missing from the second one and I feel like the third one does a lot to reclaim a sense of a heart largely just because it's, it's bigger as a it takes a swing as a romantic uh, western rather than and which in and of itself I think is quite a bold swing for the concluding chapter because it's not really fully what you no. expect of <laughs> where these films are leading up to particularly after this middle chapter yeah. Um, but yeah I, and I agree that I, lo- I really love the final act of this movie just because it's clearly so where the heart of particularly Zemeckis is um, where he's really relishing the chance to do a follow-up is in this last what 45 minutes or so and I think it is, it is a shame that it kind of has to like you say it's got this kind of self-imposed restrictions on mm. it on itself that it feels like it has to answer the questions of what it laid down at the end of the first one and it doesn't have it doesn't really have the answers to it and i i do think that the inherent issue for me at the heart of it is that it completely is relying on you buying into the fact that they're trying to save a reality that they shouldn't exist in anyway and and i i particularly found that a problem this time going into it for for this um because when you kind of look at the time travel logic and I, I read this back in my notes and I kind of saw it and I was like, what the fuck was he smoking when he read this? But I, I'm going I'm 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 to repeat it anyway. <laughs> so in regards to the time travel lo- logic, if the first film is kind of like this luxurious, silky cheesecake with this lovely topping and then a, a bit at the end where the biscuit's a bit crumbly, but you're, you're kind of fine with it. This one's just all biscuit based. <laughs> yeah, that's probably fair. This is, a, this, this is not a quote you picked up. This is an Andy Godian original. This is an Andy Godian original. I, will, I, wasn't, one I wasn't sure if you were quoting someone there, and I was like, wow, that is an interesting way in, but it makes it makes more sense if it's a Godian yeah. original. Um, yeah. like cheesecakes. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't disagree. I think that's a fair, a fair assessment. Uh, 
ultimately, I don't think he, I mean, you guys are going to get to part three and you're going to have that conversation, so we'll not belabor on part three, but I think part three does 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 factor into this conversation slightly. There's something a little bit more routine about that film. I agree, maybe the heart is in it a little bit more um, to a point. Um, and you know you do have that sweeping romantic romantic setting and that sweeping romantic arc in it, but again, it just goes back to there's something very functional and formulaic about that film. Like I think there's a part right. So I listened back to your episode. Um, uh, I'm back to the, I listened to it during the week just so I was kind of clued in on what you guys had spoken about, and you referenced a John Mulaney bit about uh, oh, yeah. Back oh, yeah. to the Future, <laughs> and I thought it was a very funny bit, and I thought, but like John Mulaney is essentially saying that Back to the Future Part Three is the film you would expect a Back to the Future movie be yeah, to be yeah, if you were yeah, pitching yeah, yeah. that at a level. And so I kind of look at part two as like, I, I just sort of gravitate more, more towards it because it exists and it probably shouldn't. Like nobody should have signed off on this or said, let's <laughs> let's let's go with that. And you know, in the same way that nobody probably should have signed off on the first one, John Mulaney is completely right. It's a really weird movie about a nerd who goes back in time with a physicist and tries not to shag his mom. Like it's <laughs> super strange film. Like, but part three feels no, more like the he's one a that loser. <laughs> part three just feels more like the one that should exist, and for that reason, I think it's the one I like the least. Yeah, it's t- it's pretty it's pretty close. It's pretty neck and neck. I I love the flawed ambition of this, and I love it's such an easygoing. It's almost a hangout movie. I think part three. It's such a nice, addictive vibe that it has, and you put it on, and immediately the ryth- the comic rhythms of it are so gentle and so pleasant, and I, I value the two very much. But I'm so so far out. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so grateful we have all three of these. It's such a weird, you know, bumpy, thorny trilogy that there's. um... It's a weird trilogy. It's a very weird trilogy of films. (laughs) This is something we've said on the Roger Rabbit and the Back to the Future episode. Zemeckis, at his peak, was probably the best person at making weird blockbusters of the type of which we just don't see anymore. The weirdness on that level at this scale. <laughs> it's a beautiful thing to behold. Do you think this is a film, and again, this probably goes back more to Back to the Future than Back to the Future Part 2 or 2 or 3, but I'll ask it anyway just because I'm on the podcast for one of the Back to the Future episodes. Two questions. Do you think there is ever a conceivable world or a world that it, where this could be conceivably remade? And B, would you have, if that had to happen, and Josh, I imagine that would be hearsay for you, like, and you, yeah. If it had to happen, who would be your Marty and your Doc? I think the only world in which it would happen would be when Bob Gale dies, because he's the gatekeeper, and uh, he's very much... Well, he's got a... I think I might might have... Uh, and I'll delete it if, I, if uh, I've if i read it, like, remembered it nope, wrong. Keep, keep it I'm in, almost, keep it in, what's it <laughs> I'm almost certain he has a clause in his will. Yeah. <laughs> Does, that's, is that real, for real? I, there's something... I'm pretty sure there's something that it's like even on the event of his death, like it can't be yeah. touched, or that... it's the other way around. I can't quite remember. Yeah, I I feel like the same because they're very very because there have been there's the okay I mean not not for a while but I remember certainly in my teenage years there were occasional rumors that bubble up about oh they're going to remake it or make a part four and it, it gets pretty quickly quashed. I know Zemeckis is still very very no about it, but yeah, um, I really I, I really the Zac Efron rumors, wasn't it? No, we was it Zach Efron yeah. as Marty McFly? Was the thing? Yeah. Could, could kind of, he's a bit too 
Too old now, but th- those were the rumours <laughs> back, back then. No, but obviously back. too old yeah. now. A bit too handsome. I don't know. I mean, Michael J. Fox is mm. a very good-looking man. Don't get me wrong, but there's an every boy boy next door to him about him. Yeah, yeah. Efron doesn't quite have that. I don't know. We could go down this rabbit hole all day. I, I love hypothetical casting conversations. <laughs> <laughs> have you seen someone's done the like um, face replacement and put Tom, like Tom Holland and Robert Downey Jr. in a scene of uh, from the original? I did see that, yeah. That, that could no, work. Don't want it. Don't want it. Keep it. <laughs> it's the only one in, like in this kind of natural, in this state of blockbuster cinema that we're in right now. That is the one. Yeah. That's surely the one they'd go with. But like... <laughs> For some reason, the Marty casting, I, and I know it's it, it, he's too old and he's too tall for one, but I keep imagining Nicholas Braun, cousin Greg from Succession, in the Marty McFly role. <laughs> I think that would be a lot of fun. <laughs> Maybe with Brian Cox as uh, as um, as a Logan Roy. Oh fuck off! <laughs> oh fuck off! <laughs> it's a good question. I don't know who I'd cast because uh, part of me wants to go just like throw it out the window a little bit and just have it that someone else, like do it as a legacy sequel oh. and have it that someone's just recreated the flux capacitor and sets off on its own yeah on its own thing which are like we're about a month away from ghostbusters afterlife doing a very similar thing yeah yeah of kind of like keeping elements of the original but and certain members of the cast but doing its own thing with I, I imagine if it were ever to happen in our in like the next ten years that that would be the way they do it. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I it feels like it's done. It, it, <laughs> it feels pretty untouchable because it goes back to what we were saying, yeah. right? There's a when I talked about Zemeckis's CV, you almost can't consider Zemeckis honestly or truthfully unless you take Back to the Future out of the equation because it is such a unicorn of a film. And I just think there are those unicorns, whether it be The Exorcist, whether it be Jaws, whether it be Back to the Future, where people just won't, uh, just an outright remake just would feel, it would feel dirty, it would feel grubby and dirty and a bit sacrilegious. And I think it probably exists in that pantheon. I think Tom Holland's a nice shout, though, for Marty McFly. I don't know how anyone else feels. How he's completely bases Peter Parker, I must say. He's clearly indebted to it. Um, Really don't want that. It won't happen, Josh. Don't worry. <laughs> I, I, I watched Cherry earlier in the year, so I've had all the Tom Holland I think I ever need in my life. <laughs> Until uh, Spider-Man 3. <laughs> three, three, three Peter, three Parker. <laughs> There's only one true Spider-Man 3, and that involves jazz dancing. <laughs> you know, I rewatched uh, Spider-Man Three recently, and again, speaking of weird blockbusters, that movie makes a lot of bizarre choices that I've only grown to appreciate more as time has gone by. Like, particularly in like when you compare it to the kind of blockbusters that we get now, looking at something like Spider-Man Three, um, <laughs> it just isn't that bad anymore. It really isn't. No. The sins that it's guilty of have have become uh, you know Endearing. the norm. Now. Yeah. <laughs> God, this personality counts for so, so much. I think I was saying to you, Andy, <laughs> in lockdown, I've been doing a lot of franchises and I'm definitely getting softer as time goes on and as filmmaking becomes so much more homogenized. Uh, the, the weird outliers, like yeah, the Star Wars prequels and Wild Wild West, I know we joke about that, but I do genuinely mean it. And I mean, ba- it's Batman a complete and, breed of yeah, the Schumacher Batman films, anymore. you know, all, yeah. all, uh, Mission Impossible 2 even, uh, all, all films that objectively are not good, 
but there's so much personality and so many weird choices that didn't need to be made but were because there was vision behind it. You know, <laughs> movies aren't directed so much anymore. It, it's sort of just cookie cutter. Well, no, that's the that's, that's two biggest out What am I saying? I don't know. I feel like an old grumpy man. But you know, movies on this no, level. No, I get what you mean. There's play certain... it too safe, and you don't have that authorial stamp that a lot of these weird blockbusters. You get have. them every now and again. You mm. get them every now and again. Like, when George Miller's given a that... hundred million plus in the Namb- yeah. Namibian, and even like like today, kind of like, and I, I think it does kind of reflect the kind of impact that filmmakers like Zemeckis have had on kind of particularly big properties like this. Um, I, I, I'm struggling to think of like another franchise now that has kind of been birthed out of just two guys writing a screenplay and then a big trilogy is kind of born out of it. That is something that is kind of very hard to kind of look at and see in this modern landscape, which is a shame. It's a, it's a big shame. But you do still get people making very interesting films within IPs and the studio systems. Like a film I'm very excited for is like... Denny Villeneuve's Dune because I think that's just going to be very that's still going to be a filmmaker's take and that is probably a bit different because it's an IP that everyone's been quite fearful of for a long time but even to like the trailer that came out this weekend for Matt Reeves take on Batman that looks quite interesting and that is a filmmaker putting quite a interesting stamp on a character who is probably like the biggest IP character of the last 60 to 80 years <laughs> so there, there is room within it but like like you say kind of looking back on the weirdness of something like Bats of the Future Part 2 does make you kind of appreciate what a lot of the films around the 80s and the 90s and even like the, the sequels in the 80s and the 90s are doing that you don't see a great deal of now and I think um, it's like Zemeckis is guilty of contributing to that homogenization. Like he, oh, for he, sure. he's not a weird director by any. I think at least now in the current climate, you guys are alluding to some work I haven't seen back pre Back to the Future. Then you get to films like this, what we're talking about today, where there legitimately is an oddness to it. But if you saw his version of The Witches last year, that's that's straight up. That's straight up. You know that 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 is paint by numbers blockbuster stuff. And that was unfortunate. That film. Yeah. So I and I his think, next you know, film's gonna be Pinocchio remake for Disney. Yeah. So it's like a bit. I mean, kind that of, just sounds kind of... not good. I mean, it could be good, but like conceptually, <laughs> it sounds not good. Um, so I, I think it's yeah, I completely agree with you. There's it's films like this again. We go back to why we like this or why we think this is worth seeing, and it is it existed in the time where people were actually making big movies like this with these weird concepts and these weird constructs and these tonal shifts. And they were making them, and they were doing reasonably good business as well. Um, and now you just don't, you just don't get that. I mean, you can love the stuff that's out there today, and I would never judge anyone for doing it. But I do think it deprives us of movies like Back to the Future too, and that's probably on 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 the balance, probably a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, I I personally think that's a, a pretty glorious note to end this discussion on. I, I've Absolutely. exhausted my my conversation points anyhow. Some uh, anything else you fellas want to? want to get into i think no. i think I'm, I'm 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 tapped out as well i had sharknado 3 written in my notes <laughs> i can't remember what that was to do with oh yeah it was to do the with, true jaws 19 yeah it was to do with jaws 19, jaws 19. i think bob gill the quote saying we may not have had jaws 19 but we do have sharknado 3 so we weren't completely off there either um, but no, that was the that was the last thing that i Tremendous. think was worth throwing in there Tremendous. Oh, um 
and and to say to you, dear listener, whoever whoever you may be, um, we we have missed doing this, and we and yeah. we very much appreciate the fact that um, you like a, a fair few of you were still quite enthusiastic to drop us a message yeah, for definitely. around Back to the Future Part Two. It's very much appreciated. It's nice to hear that people are listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, Emma verbal diorama messages to say welcome back. Thank you, Em. And I, and she said, I remember seeing this movie and thinking how clever it was to blend scenes from the first movie into the second. Honestly, it still blows my mind watching it today. It's held up well and is quite prescient too. It's my favourite Back to the Future sequel. Interesting, Em. Thank you for that. Uh, we got a tweet from Next to the Isle saying, flawed film, but still so ambitious. Shark still looks fake. Shark uh, still looks fake. Agreed on both <laughs> counts. <laughs> And uh, one of my favourite tweets we got in about this was from <laughs> Andy Peterson that simply said, this movie confused my mother so much. <laughs> <laughs> Which, I, like, I watched this with my mum when I <laughs> re-watched it for the podcast. And I, I, I can very much, as one Andy to another Andy, I can very much relate. <laughs> <laughs> Way back when we were originally going to record this, we put a call out for tweets and uh, the lovely Griff uh, from the Money Pit episode at the Enigma Griff on Twitter, he tweeted in saying, personally, the best Back to the Future film. Who didn't want a pizza that is the size of a two pound coin that could turn into a full size in 10 seconds? Um, oh, and again, it's done that thing. <laughs> yeah, when, I, when I copy and paste uh, these tweets. And you got um, face with tears of joy. Face with tears of joy. <laughs> that dinner scene where Michael is playing three characters was way ahead of its time. Never got bored of watching it. I do. I have to say though, I think that pizza looks gross. There's no tomato base. It's a, it's a white pizza. Isn't no, it's it? a weird pizza. Horrible. It's a weird pizza. And there's not enough for everyone. Everyone gets a slice each. There's like two left at the end of it. It's not going to oh, be. Oh, I'll a... have. I'll have some. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I will. <laughs> well, you're right. You're right. <laughs> you're right. <laughs> Maybe he's the MVP of Back to the Future. <laughs> Careful, don't want to get Come, sued. Crispin Glover's coming listening. To, coming down to do the thankless task. <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah, and, and Griff did also follow up that comment by saying it's a sequel way ahead of its time. Hoverboards, self-lacing trainers, and many more. One of the best sequels ever made, in his opinion. Which... I, I I think we've shown I I don't fully agree with that, but like I, I think it's an ambitious sequel. Yeah. At the end of the day, either way, it's a... <laughs> kind of sequel you want to see. Mm. I think Wikipedia ends its. Uh, you know, you get that preliminary synopsis, if not the synopsis of the actual plot, but that you know, sort of the film's legacy or whatever. I think yeah. it, there was a couple of articles attached there that I I clicked on, read. One was from Collider, one was from Dan a Geek, where two people were arguing that it was indeed, and Wikipedia then posited that in its own assessment, it was indeed considered one of the uh, the top Hollywood sequels of all time, which again surprised me a little bit, but clearly there are people out there who feel very yeah. strongly that this is a, not just a very good film, but a, 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 as far as sequels go, one of the, the one of the best. I think particularly if you read it through the gaze that you positioned there, Josh, where it is a film that's actively reacting about the idea of mm. what a sequel should could and should do and shouldn't do and mm-hmm. then kind of reacting on, based on that and I, I, I can see how you you can easily fall in love with it for that but yeah the, a little lacking for thee <laughs> <laughs> there's no aliens like oh. <laughs> it's no T2 <laughs> 
By which I mean terminated to Judgment Day, not Train Spotting. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I need that caveat. <laughs> Always forget that actually exists. T two, Train Spotting two. It's all right. It's, it's probably on a par for me with this. If we're gonna, yeah. this keep, if we're gonna keep making this loop. Then it's, it's doing a swing. <laughs> I never thought Train Spotting 2 would come up in the conversation around Bad to the Future 2. You've got to add that to our letterbox list now, Andy. Oh, absolutely. Don't you worry. One of the first <laughs> things I do whenever I publish an episode is listen back and add films to the <laughs> letterbox list of every film mentioned on Ramblin' and Amblin' podcast. <laughs> oh. So that d- does just about wrap up business on Bad to the Future Part 2. We'll be completing the trilogy in a few episodes' time. But before we get there, our next episode will be taking a look at uh, the next Steven Spielberg film in the in his filmography and the, and the Amblin filmography. is 1989's Always, the romantic drama starring Richard Dreyfuss, Helen Hunt, John Goodman, and Audrey Hepburn. Our last film of the 1980s as well, I, I must... Uh, as, what a uh, what a way to go out, eh? What a what a we're what nearly a, out on the eighties. Uh... <laughs> uh, if you would like to watch the film along with us and don't happen to have it on disc, it is available to stream for those of you that have a Virgin Go subscription. Otherwise, you can rent or buy the film digitally from Apple iTunes, Google Play Movies, Amazon Video, Chili, Microsoft Store, Sky Store, and YouTube. Uh, if you've got any thoughts on always good or bad, good or bad, probably probably bad. But um, hey, hey, uh, enough <coughs> of that. <laughs> sorry, I don't like I don't like being I don't like being down on things. I'm sorry. Um, I do hate. This I, I am um, looking forward to this because it's a film that I I can't wait to go to the back to, despite thinking it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I watched it deep in lockdown one so maybe it was a maybe it was a victim of of lockdown oh whatever we'll, we'll find out we'll find out i'm curious to yeah. find out anyway any thoughts you might have listeners tweet us at ramblin amblin or email ramblin about amblin at gmail.com with your thoughts and we will share them on the episode is it a film you've seen dan yeah Just get your two cents quick before we <laughs> the, the word the word the word fine's been lobbied around a lot in the last 20 seconds fine's probably a generous description it's it's fine it's fine it's there's a reason that nobody cites always as the favorite spielberg film i mean if, if they did i would be deeply suspicious of that person something we'll unpack in our next episode which will be with you in a couple of weeks um uh, before we, we sign out of today's episode, a uh, big thank you, Dan, for coming yeah, in. Yeah, always a pleasure, my always man. Always a pleasure to be yeah. here. Uh, w- look forward to uh, welcoming you back. We've got you down for a couple of the 90s ones that I'm very excited to get to. I'm very excited to get to the 90s in general. The oh. 90s Amblin slate is... What <laughs> Ginger peachy. And it's short a decade, too. <laughs> yeah, well, they get shorter from here on out, yeah. really, don't they? <laughs> Uh, but yes, Dan, absolute pleasure, and yet, like, yeah, you, you're perfect man for talking about any film. So it's, <laughs> no, it's always good to be here, guys. Really enjoyed it, um, and you guys are smashing it. So anytime, any place. Well, not any place. Obviously, if I'm in like a, a swimming pool or something, we can't record. But you get the gist. Can, the neg- Joe versus always... a volcano from an actual <laughs> volcano. <laughs> always glad to be here. Uh... And always a pleasure to have you with us as well. 
I always a pleasure to have you here as well, dear listener. We appreciate your patience whilst we took mm-hmm. a little pause, as well as all your well wishes that uh, you sent to us over the over the period that we've been out of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, we very much miss doing this. And uh, please do remember to like, subscribe, leave a review, or maybe just leave a comment saying what your favourite Amblin film is and whether E.T. makes you cry. We'd love to hear from you in any way, shape, or form. Uh, we love doing this, and we're, I, I'm sure I speak for Josh as well when I say I, it feels bloody great to be back. Oh, uh, back in action. It's good. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking uh, we're back. <laughs> I'm thinking we're back. And that is us out of time on Back to the Future Part 2. But we look forward to welcoming you back next time for our episode on Spielberg's Always. Until then, take care of each other and we'll see you next time.